As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Phil Hay Show. Hello there, welcome to the show. The Phil Hay Show is brought to you by The Athletic and The Square Ball. My name's Dan Moylan, hello. From The Athletic is Phil Hay. Hello. And from The Square Ball, Michael Normanson. Hello. We're going to be chatting about Cess Pod shortly, Leeds United's former community officer. Phil spoke to Cess as uh, part of the Athletic marking Black History Month. Very informative then, Phil. A fascinating guy. I mean, obviously no playing connection with, um, with Leeds United, but grew up in the city and came back as the community football officer at a really key point um, at, the, at the end of the 80s and, and 1990s when the, the club were kind of stepping up the fight against racism and, and a fascinating chat with a very intelligent guy. Yeah, the accompanying article is an absolute must-read. And for a limited time, you can get that and get The Athletic for just £1 a month, including that look at Rafinha that we mentioned last week and a piece on the transformation of Leeds United and Wolves as football clubs. To uh, to read all that, head to theathletic.com forward slash Leeds pod to sign up. That's theathletic.com forward slash Leeds pod. Get yourself signed up for a pound a month. With reference to Wolves then, Phil, we weren't quite sure what to expect when we um, previewed that last week. Could have gone either way and it went, well, the wrong way. And could have gone either way on Monday, the, the way the game panned out. They, they say that you get away with less in the Premier League and I think we we saw that on Monday evening. That There wasn't a huge amount wrong with Leeds' performance, I didn't think, but there was a lot in the game that will have reminded you of the, the harder championship matches last season and, and the season before where Leeds had a lot of the ball in the, the more dominant periods, but really struggled to to dig out that killer chance that they needed and, and found it difficult against a team who were really well-structured and really well-organised and actually seemed to realise in the first half that it made sense to to sit deep and try and draw the, the sting out of Leeds. And you just got that feeling in the second half that Wolves realised that they'd, they'd maybe just come through that little storm and, and that they had the, the fluency and the quality in their team to pick Leeds off and, and to get something from the game. And I thought in particular the last 20 minutes after Wolves scored, you the way in which they, they knew how to see the game out, the, the way in which they understood how to manage it and to make sure that, that Leeds were able to create very little in, in that closing period, I think underlines the fact that they are a Europa League team, very high quality team and, and have been for the past two seasons in the Premier League and, and not a performance or a, a game to panic about at all, but the sort of thing that is going to happen in this division. Both Stuart Dallas and um, Nuno Santo said it was a game of fine margins. Do you think it just swung on that little bit of extra quality that Wolves were able to find? It felt like they were able to just notch it up a gear for about 15 or 20 minutes in the second half when it when it really counted. It was the fact, I think, that Leeds didn't score um, in the first half when they were so heavily on top. And there were some 
kind of old familiar issues there, uh, particularly out wide, where they had a, a lot of good positions and a lot of positions to to do some damage from, which which they didn't take advantage of. And you know, Bamford felt quite peripheral in the game. He didn't touch the ball a huge amount. He he didn't put too many passes together. But actually, I I went back through the the highlights of the game and and the footage of the game and. There were periods in it where he took up some great positions in the box, got himself into space, just looking for a, a nice cross onto his head in the way that, that Harrison was able to serve it up at Sheffield United. And it was just never there at any point. You know, the, the stages of the game where Leeds looked like they could have got ahead, they, they should have gone ahead. They just didn't have that precision where it mattered. And, and I think you're right. There was a definite swing at the start of the second half. There was a definite upturn in Wolves' confidence. And, and they know that from front to back, they've, they've got quality in most positions and players who are good enough to, to decide a, a tight game like that. And I think as difficult a game as it was, I think they'll look at that as a, a kind of routine away win where you have to defend very well, you have to be tight. And, and ultimately, when the, the odd chance or two comes, you, you've got to take one of them, which is exactly what they did. But ultimately, what decided it was a stroke of luck, more or less, wasn't it? It could have, it still is one that could have gone either way. I think despite the fact Wolves came into it more in the second half, it was, it was not so much that they carved us open as Calvin just dangled his head at something. Yeah, it, it was a good game without being high on chances, but I did feel that at the point where the goal arrived, it seemed to have been coming for a little while. Certainly when Saiz banged in that volley that was disallowed, you, you felt that Wolves were on top at that point and, and it had got the measure of Leeds slightly and it, it kind of carried on. And I said on Twitter after about 65 minutes that it felt like a scenario for Hernandez because they did seem to have lost their grip in midfield and it just felt as if Somebody that could put a bit of add a bit of calm there, put their foot on the ball a bit more, would have helped. And he came on right after um, him and his scored with that that deflection off Phillips, and it felt like it felt like it came a little bit too late because you knew what what Wolves would do, and and you knew that in their system, and particularly with Cody in the middle of defence, who who always he was always smart enough to be in open play a yard behind Bamford, never to give Bamford the run on him, never to, to let him in behind and, and, and have the chance of any one-on-ones. You knew in that system it was going to be very difficult to create anything great. But you're right, it was, I think fine margins was absolutely right. I, I can imagine Wills thinking that they'd done just about enough to earn that result. I can well imagine Leeds thinking, as I think they do, that, that they deserved a point from it. But it, it was, yeah, I think it, it just was that little moment that went their way just at, at the same time as accepting that I think it did feel as if it was possibly in the post. I'm sure Bielsa would shoulder the responsibility for not making the subs a little bit earlier, but I agree. It felt to me in that second half, you were sort of willing him to change it because you could see the game was getting away from us. Do you, do you think he got that wrong? Yeah, possibly. I think, again, it comes back to the fact, and, and this, as we will we'll talk about, is, is more of a problem now that Calvin Phillips is injured. It comes back to the fact that there isn't a huge amount of choice when it comes to central midfielders, and, and particularly after them failing to sign uh, Michael Cuisance in, in the window that is the area where they, they do look a little bit short but it did just need seem as if it needed a bit of an older head or a bit of a calmer head or, or somebody to, to add the body in there and, and the, the thing about Hernandez is that we, we focus a lot on you know what he does in a creative sense his assists and his goals and everything else but he is good at dictating play and he is good at setting the rhythm and, and I think crucially at changing the rhythm when that needs to happen and and I agree with you it felt around about the hour as if Wolves had just managed to get their foot into that game and as if Leeds were, were going backwards slightly and I wonder with, with hindsight whether Bielsa wishes he'd, he'd made that change earlier but I think even though the game swung after Hernandez came on and, and Leeds had most of it from there until until the end it seemed to me that Wolves were happy for it to play out that way, and the fact that they got the goal meant that they, you know, they knew how to sit back, they knew how to dig in, and, and they knew how to to see that out. And as I say, you you look at them, and, and without them being sparkling on Monday night, they do seem very accomplished. What did you make of Rafinha's debut? Good, I thought. Um, in 
the little period that he was on, certainly a, a couple of little runs and, and crosses that seemed promising, plenty of pace there. I, I think in a game like that on Monday, Bielsa's wingers have got to kill it because you, you won't get any ball through the middle. If if you watch the periods of the game at which Leeds were trying to play through Rodrigo and into Bamford and Harrison dropping into a central area to try and get through the middle of Wolves' defence, it was too congested and too compact and you would have scenarios where Wolves would have six, seven, eight players around them leaving no space. But out wide, Leeds had quite a bit of joy and you know it, it was the, the kind of precision of the deliveries from the wings that, that was letting them down. And you know that, I think, is the, the bonus for Bielsa is that he does have Paveda as an alternative. He does have Rafinha, who looked to me just in that short spell like a talented player with, with plenty about him. And when they find themselves on a, on a night or on a day where they have players camp behind the ball and, and they're almost back to that championship scenario of the bus parked in front of the goal, it's got to work out wide. And if it doesn't work out wide, you're susceptible to the, the sort of result that came on, on Monday night. But I still think, in the main, it's positive to say that they've gone toe-to-toe with a uh, Europa League team and have, have genuinely made them grind it out at Ellen Road. And we are going to lose the odd game like this. That's something we're yeah. going to have to face up to in the Premier League because there are some really quality teams in this league. I mean, like, you know, we could have shaded maybe a draw against Liverpool, maybe got something against Man City, but all games so far have been pretty close, really, haven't they? So we've got to, I guess, just take these on the chin. Yeah, and, and I think until the league reaches a point where it, it settles down and, and teams start to know properly what it is that they're looking at, so whether they're, they're going to be trying to stay up or whether they're going to be comfortably mid-table or, or aiming a, a little higher than that, you're not quite sure what these results mean. So you don't know if at the end of the season you're going to look back at this kind of defeat and, and think that a point there would have been very helpful and, and might have made a, a big difference. Whereas in the Championship, it, it, was, it was hard to rationalise any poor result because of what Leeds were aiming for and because the margin for error was so small when it came to finishing in the top two. You, you could never come away from Ellen Road having dropped points without feeling anything other than, than frustration about it. And, and I don't doubt that that will have been the same on Monday, especially because the game was so finely balanced. But it is that change of mindset, isn't it? From a league like the Championship that you're desperate to get out of to a league like the Premier League that you're happy to be in. And I don't think anybody ever acclimatises to the feeling of, of getting beaten. And I don't think, you know, once you get further into a Premier League season, you're as able to be as kind of philosophical about it as you are before a ball's been kicked and you're enjoying the, the feeling of, of being back at that level. But this is going to happen and, you know, it, it will happen more often than not in the Premier League because that's the, the way it is. And I think, as I said it right at the, the beginning, you don't get away with as much as at this level. And that's probably the biggest lesson from the, the game against Wolves. Jimenez ended up being the central antagonist, I guess, in, in this particular narrative. I mean, we spoke about him earlier in the week on the Square Ball podcast and Perhaps I think I was guilty of letting him off a little bit in regards to the kick out against Robin Cock. And now we've seen the shove on Calvin Phillips as Costas Phillips for, for six weeks. And of course he was, well, he scored a goal, but it was with the assistance of Phillips's head. So talk to me about Jimenez. I would let him away with the foul on Phillips. Um, clipped his heel, nudged him, but I don't think there was any intent there. I don't mean there wasn't any intent to foul him, but whereas if you look at Pickford's foul on Van Dijk on Saturday, you could see from a mile off that there was quite a grave risk there of somebody coming away with a broken leg or an ACL as, as it turned out. The Jimenez challenge on Phillips was felt more innocuous to me and it, it's just unlucky that, that Phillips has landed on his shoulder in, in that way and I think even Phillips will probably be surprised that in those circumstances it's resulted in an injury that means that he's going to be out for, for five or six weeks. I'm a little bit like you know the, the handball rule. I, I, I'm less and less certain about what it is that VAR is looking for because I didn't think there was any doubt at all that 
there was a kick out there um, and a deliberate one and an attempt to catch Robin Koch. And if I'm being honest, in the in the climate at the moment, I think that's a red card. I do. I, I think it's it's not horrendous, and you know, at worst, he would have caught Koch with his um, with his studs potentially in that area. But um, it's violent conduct, isn't it? It's not excessively violent conduct, but it surely crosses the line. And, and I, I find it odd that VAR just seemed to ignore that completely. In fact, there, there are quite a lot of things in games that you expect VAR to look at, and they don't. And it all seems well. I mean, it, it, you know, it's criticised every every weekend of the of the season, but it all feels a bit ad hoc, and it all feels a bit out of control in the sense of of nobody being sure what it is that VAR is there to do. And and, and clearly, it did the job when Saiz scored that volley. You know, opponents was evidently offside on on the other side of the pitch as the ball went over the top. But that from Jimenez, yeah, I thought at the very least it it should have been reviewed, and I was surprised that it didn't seem to be. It had very little impact on the game, but I think you're right, it contributes to the overall feeling at the moment that the VAR is a bit out of control. Like no one no one is sure exactly how it's being used and who is the judge of whether or not things get looked at properly. Because it felt a bit like with the cost of penalty as well. If that had been given and they'd broken that down frame by frame, they could have probably justified that as a penalty as well, even though I don't particularly want to see things like that given. No, I'm the same. I, I don't want that to be a penalty. But then you get to the point where so many other things are being given and, and so many soft challenges are being penalised that you you want to see everybody get a fair crack of the whip and I agree with you I don't think that the Jimenez and, and Koch incident would have changed the game um, significantly but it doesn't it doesn't do anything to, to raise VAR's popularity and it reminds me a little bit of the of the game at Arsenal in the FA Cup last season when I think it was Berardi who had a kick aimed at him and, and again even though that was blatant and, and even though it was deliberate VAR just seemed to brush it off and and move on, which is clearly their prerogative because they're in the, the position to judge these things. But it's a little bit difficult for, for the rest of us to understand. What you're saying, Phil, is there's an anti-Leeds agenda for definite. Oh, absolutely. With regards to the Merseyside derby, one of the things we picked up on in the Squareball podcast was that the ref from Monday night, David Coote, was the VAR referee, actually, in the Everton-Liverpool game. What what sort of a game do you think he, he had on Monday? I, d- I didn't think he was terrible. I, th- I thought... <laughs> I think it helped Wolves that the flow of the game was a bit disjointed and I think that did help to take a bit of the sting out of the way Leeds were playing. Although equally, I, I thought Leeds flagged at that crucial period and at the start of the second half where you were really looking for them to turn the screw. And I think that was the point in the game where if they'd, if they'd been able to sustain the performance and score in that period, then the first half would have looked like a good build-up to decisive de- decisive point in the match. As it was, the first half was made to look like a period in which they desperately needed to score and because they didn't, it, it came to bear on them. So I don't think Coote was responsible for the result. And, and if anything, on on Monday, I think there was more to be said about um, the video referee than there was about him because of the, the challenge on Costa and because of the, the incident between Jimenez and, and Koch. But yeah, I, I, thought it was, I thought it was passable, his performance. I'm surprised they didn't ask him to take a second look actually at Jimenez and the kick out at, um, at Cock, but there we are. Injuries mounting up. Now we're going to hear from Bielsa. We're recording the first half of this show just before Bielsa's press conference ahead of Villa. So we'll have his reaction and, and the latest state of play on injuries towards the back end of this show when we preview Villa. But the injuries are mounting up and we lost Cooper in the warm-up for this game and you picked out actually uh, Strike as your one to watch on last week's show. Uh, if Cooper wasn't fit, and it was obviously a very eleven and a half hour injury at a change to the to the starting lineup, how do you think? Um, how do you think he did then? I thought he played well again, um, and I think that the crucial thing with Strike is that he's not looking out of his depth at all. Again, like everybody else, it, it became difficult in the second half, and and he was obviously involved in the lead up to the goal, losing his his footing 
Um, but but even after that, the, there was ample opportunity to to kind of shut Jimenez out as he ran across the edge of the box, and I don't think that really falls to to strike as as being his fault. You're certainly right about the injuries, though. I mean, the the one with Cooper was less um, severe than than the, the groin strain that Llorente brought back from international duty with Spain, and and I think all last week there there was a feeling that Cooper probably would be okay to play against Wolves, but we were watching him in the warm up, and they were doing doing a little bit of um, possession, six players against six, and knocking the ball around in in a square, and you could see him speaking to one of the physios, signalling towards his groin. You could see when he was running that he wasn't entirely comfortable and it, it became pretty obvious that he was going to have to have to make way and I think that leaves quite a bit of doubt over whether or not he's going to be able to play at Villa on Friday. We'll find out shortly um, from Bielsa but I would suspect not. I think it would be difficult to to turn around from that on Monday night and, and be ready for a, a Friday evening game and, and Llorente won't be fit either. But obviously the, the key injury is, is that to Phillips and, and that is always the key injury for Leeds because a little bit like Van Dijk over at Liverpool when Phillips is missing, the question of who replaces him is probably the most difficult one to answer in, in Bielsa's squad. So all in all then, conclusion on Monday, we just write this one off and crack on with the next one? I think so. I think the thing they need to be careful of now, especially because the injuries are kicking in, is that one defeat to Wolves doesn't become another defeat to Villa and then become a third defeat to a very good Leicester side a little bit further down the line. I think it would help everybody to take something from the Villa game just to feel like that impetus is is still there. But yeah, I, I wouldn't be dwelling dwelling to any great extent um on the, the game on Monday. I just think the I just think the lessons about what went wrong were, were fairly fairly obvious. It it did weaken in midfield. There was a, a fair amount of wastage um out wide. I think if if they'd been more consistent in either of those positions over ninety minutes, they'd have they'd have taken something from that game and they'd potentially have won it. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Now, this is a beauty then, Phil. As part of um, the athletic marking Black History Month, you spoke to Cess Pod about his experiences in football and the work that he did at Leeds to help turn the tide away from what was quite a dark time in the 80s with problems of racism and, and the National Front being active outside the stadium. So tell us a bit about that. What, what was it like to speak to him? Yeah, well, I mean, this is the, the whole point of the, the Black History Month features is that the fact that it's easy now to forget exactly what it was like back then. And actually, it's easy to not know what it was like back then because Pod grew up in the 60s in, in Leeds. He'd come over from the Caribbean with his family. He had five siblings and his mother and father thought there'd be better educational opportunities for them over here. And I mean, you said to me when I told you that we were we were doing this piece, you said, well, look out for the inevitable what about white history month tweets that, that come your way. And it's true. And, and that, that does happen. But it's when you listen to or read a story like Pods that you properly understand what it is like to not only to be in a an industry like football, which was horrendously racist back in the, the 70s and, and 80s when he was playing, but also to grow up in England in Northern English City, um, same all over the country, really, in the 1960s, when it was incredibly difficult to be a black kid on the streets. And, you know, the, when, when we first started talking about him coming over to England, he, he spoke about how the family grew up in Beeston. And the story that jumped out to me was was him saying that he, he had two ways of, of getting to school in the morning. He could either take the bus, um, which was, in his words, the safe way, 
but it cost money and, and if he wanted to save his pocket money the, the other option was to walk but in order to walk he had to go through a, a nearby gypsy camp and he said that without fail every day he would have to run through the camp and if they caught up with him he'd be in a fight you know there'd, there'd be no no question about it and as you went through his younger life and and the trials that he was offered that came to nothing in in his opinion now because of racial profiling and and then on to Bradford where he became record appearance uh, maker and and obviously made his his name in the game and and heard the stories about the racism he encountered there not from the club I mean I've got to say Bradford sounded incredibly supportive of him but you know at opposition away grounds where he he was abused he remembers being someone spitting in his face the, the fact that it was the atmosphere was so bad that his mother went to one game and then refused to go back and and said to him I don't know why you play this game because they don't like you. The people who are watching you play don't like you. And she, he said she, that she found it very difficult to differentiate between Bradford supporters who were very supportive of him and the opposition crowds who, who abused him constantly. And all in all, it was, it was such a sad tale. But in speaking to him, I was amazed by how positive he was about it and, and, Really, how how little he seemed to hold a grudge about what had gone on, because I have to be honest, I I can't imagine living through anything like that. I mean, I remember growing up, going in the 80s, and I think it's a really important part of our history that we need to understand where we've come from and the progress that we've made. And there's probably still work to do as well on that front, particularly with the way that society is at the moment. But uh, yeah, I remember chants on the cop. Um, I remember bananas being thrown at grounds and people wouldn't believe that who maybe got into football in like the, the 90s or the 2000s or more recently, that that is what it was like. And it's important that I think we, we have a look at these things so we can understand how we can keep improving. I think it shows how things can change as well, because by the time I came to games, mid-90s, that was all gone. You'd hear odd, you still would and still do, to be fair, still hear odd isolated people shouting things that, that kind of make you make you turn your head a little bit. But that that side of it had had completely gone. But And it showed how that changed in such a short space of time. And I think with the almost the recent upswing of nationalism and racism across the country I think it's it's a thing to almost keep an eye on now to make sure it doesn't it doesn't flip back the other way there's probably no more infamous example of racism in the 80s than Mark Walters at Hearts getting bananas thrown at him and obviously they're my club and and it is still a, a absolute embarrassment that when you when you watch it back um but you saying that you you noticed the difference in the 90s or at least didn't notice the same um the same kind of culture is interesting because that was in part down to pod coming to leeds at the end of the the 80s he'd finished playing he'd gone and, and he'd had a bit of time with scarborough and, and also with osset town and he was approached by the pfa and, and told that leeds wanted a, a football in the community officer they wanted somebody they were well aware of the fact that there were problems with racism at Ellen Road and that they had the National Front on the streets on, on match days and they wanted to become more inclusive and they wanted to reach out to the city and they basically wanted to make it feel like a safe place for black or um, ethnic minority sports to come to. So the PFA put Pod's name forward and uh, and he tells a story of the interview and, and uh, that he had for the job and, and even there of somebody who, to his credit, I think he didn't want to name, he, he didn't want to sort of settle old scores, but somebody at Leeds who invented false allegations about him to try and stop him getting the job about things that had gone on at a couple of the development centres that, that Pod worked at, the fact that they hadn't been successful or the suggestion that money had gone missing. And the PFA investigated all this and, and none of it was true. And, and as Pod says, there can have been no reason for that other than the person concerned was racist or he didn't like Pod. And given that they'd never met before, as Pod says, it could only be the same thing. And I think as you go through these stories, you, you start to realise what it is actually like to be at risk of discrimination 
pretty much every day and in any environment that you that you go into. And given the the work that he did for the club and, and given the difference that he helped to make, I, I thought that was probably the most shocking part of the entire story. And he did do some sterling work in the communities. I mean, anyone who's familiar with the geography of Leeds will understand we've got Chapel Town as a, a large black area and it was so important for him to go out into those areas and engage these kids and try and get them into football because for a long time, particularly during the 80s, Leeds didn't engage those communities and it's such a, a rich part of the city. I think they were aware of that as well and it's important to say that he felt that he got a huge amount of support from Howard Wilkinson who would constantly put players up you know, for, for a lot of times to go down into Chapel Town and other areas to speak to the kids and play a bit of football and try and engage with them and, and embrace them. He said he got a lot of support from Alan Roberts who was the general manager um, at the time uh, and also from Leslie Silver and, and Bill Fotherby. He, he said it was extremely strategic and it was a really concerted effort to change things and, and he's absolutely convinced that he did and, and that they did and it wasn't a case of it becoming perfect overnight and it wasn't a case of going from severe racism in the late 1980s to, to none at all um, at the start of the 1990s but he said he was very much aware of black supporters starting to appear at games and, and of people being more interested and I think it's it for me anyway I've, I've heard Pod spoken about before um, and, and I knew a little bit about his community role but I wanted to find out about it properly because I had a feeling that there was probably far more to it than he ever let on and, and it came up in conversation that that in the end he'd um, dealt with Albert Johansson in, in his, his final years before Johansson died. Johansson had been a big hero of his because when, when Pob was growing up in Beeston, Johansson was playing for Leeds and, and he said it was really the only reason I went to watch the club was because the, there was a black face amongst the, the white players on the pitch. You know, there was a black player there and it was something to something to latch on to, something to, to feel connected about. And, you know, the, there was no support for Johansson. Really, the club tried to give him a bit of financial help, but but he was destitute. He was, he was obviously suffering from alcoholism and, and he had a, a lot of problems. And I thought Pod was right about one thing. He said things have changed and, and support networks are, are much better. But when you think now about the small number of black former players who go into coaching or management, you're still left with the question of, what is there for them when the game finishes? You know, what what is out there to occupy them or to earn the money or to, to keep them busy? And and the answer is probably not an awful lot. And it does make you think that, you know, the support that was kind of needed back when Johansson was at his, his lowest ebb is, is probably still needed in, in the same way now. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. We're joined now by Jermaine Beckford. Thank you so much for joining us. You're doing a Leeds podcast at the minute with Matthew Lewis, and people should check that out. Doing a Leeds, you will find that in your podcast player right now. So can you tell us then, Jermaine, about life as a black footballer at Leeds? Do you know what? Life as a black footballer in general always has its uh, its challenges. You know, we'd like to we'd like to think that it's it's all fair and all even, and there's no discrimination that goes on. But to a certain extent, there is, unfortunately, and um, you know, it's something that, fortunately, for black football players and black people in general nowadays, this new generation of footballers that are coming through are not they're not shy and they're not um, afraid to put their thoughts and their views out there, and they use their platforms really, really well. Um, and it's something that they should all be very, very proud of. 
I think, Jimmy, we all like to think that, that things have moved on and, and things are different now or, or in, in some ways potentially easier. But some of the, the stuff that Cess Paul was talking about, I, I found really shocking. Can you relate to that or, or does it shock you to read that as well, given the, the way things are in society these days? Yes and no. It does shock me because of the times that we live in now, it, it's, it doesn't happen that often. It still happens, but it doesn't happen that often. Um, but to hear that it used to happen every single football match and walking down the street, you'd be um, worried or concerned about being attacked verbally or, or physically attacked. And one of the, the stories that really stuck with me is uh, his his journey to school. Um, he used to, he had two two different ways to get to school. He had the safe journey, which was on the bus and the not so safe journey, <laughs> shall we call it. We've come a long way and, and the world has moved on quite quite a distance since then. But as I mentioned, we've we still got a little bit, a little bit uh, of distance to go. You had a bit of a thorny relationship, actually, with the Leeds crowd in general when when you were there during the promotion season. Although it's nice that there's a lot of mutual love there. Looking back on it, um, can you tell us what that was like at the time when you were trying to get Leeds promoted, but you were getting a little bit of stick from the crowd? Yeah, I was getting a little bit of stick, but that's because um, I had a, a transfer request put in, and the details of that were a little bit sticky. Uh, and understandably, the, the, the Leeds fans weren't previewed to, to all the, the details, etc. of that. And, you know, as quickly as I made the decision with um, with the people around me, I, I made the, the decision to pull it back because it's not the, the way that I wanted to be remembered. And I like to think a lot of the, the Leeds fans have appreciated my honesty, first and foremost, but the work that I put into the club to, to help them get back into a, a position where they deserve to be. You know, my only regret from from my time at Leeds is that I didn't stay there for longer I wanted to to end my career there and it's a phenomenal football club with an amazing fan base and I've made no secret of the fact that I am a Leeds fan and I couldn't help but become a Leeds fan you know after that first week of of joining up at Four Parch and and going for a stroll through the Leeds City Centre and having my first encounter with a Leeds fan who was maybe four or five times my age and he was screaming at me, you're my idol, you're my hero, you're going to be someone special, just get your head down, work hard, score goals, and we'll love you forever for it. And something that I tried to do as much as I could. There were times where I preserved a little bit of energy, shall we say, um, instead of running into the channels, I was, I was saving my energy and, and waiting for the moments where it counted in front of goal. Um, <laughs> but I don't think that was fully appreciated at the time. <laughs> I um, I interviewed you way back when I started on The Athletic and there were two things that were, well, there, there, were, there was loads in it that was really interesting, but two things that jumped out. Firstly, the story of the car you drive, which is um, the equivalent of Top Gear's reasonably priced car. Um, but secondly, when you're talking about the crowd, you were saying that when you first joined Leeds, <laughs> you, um, you found the experience of playing in front of 30,000 really strange and really difficult. And I remember you saying there were times when you were thinking it wasn't going well and you were thinking with other players around about you, just don't pass the ball to me for five minutes so I can get myself going and just kind of reset a little bit. It, it was a big culture shock for you coming from Wealdstone. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Like when you take into account, I was playing in front of 80 people on a Saturday and then all of a sudden I'm thrown into the, the lion's pit that is Ellen Road you know, in front of 34 and a half thousand people within a space of a handful of days. My first touch when I came off the bench against Crystal Palace was a, a bad touch, but it was a good touch. So I meant to control it and keep it to my feet, but it ended up bouncing up over the defender's head. And I ended up spinning. The defender went the wrong way. I went the right way. He dragged me down. I got away with one there. 
but everybody laughed it. They loved it. They cheered. And, you know, from there, I think it was the next game I had a, a like you mentioned, a, a brief five minute spell or four or five minute spell where everything I tried to do, nothing came off. And I could feel the tension rising every time the ball was coming up to me, but it kept on coming up. And I, kept, I was just looking at the players thinking, please, just just bear with me. Understand the situation that I'm in. I'm, I'm up against it here. Just give me a couple of minutes. Let me just get myself together. And then, you know, you'll, you'll, start seeing, you'll start seeing the best of me. They didn't do that. They kept on popping the ball to my feet, popping it to my chest, putting it in the air. And I had to, uh, I had to try and figure it out. And fortunately for me, being thrown in the deep end, gave me thicker skin. It gave me the, the opportunity to, to understand that there's a lot more to playing for Leeds United than just, just scoring goals. And what about this car then? Because you're all limos and Ferraris, aren't you? <laughs> Get out of here, limos and Ferraris. <laughs> that would be nice. Um, I drive a hybrid, mate. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> um, when I first turned up at Leeds, I was in a... Um, Right, I'll take you back a little bit further. So I used to work for RAC and I was driving around in Renault 19s and I had a Vauxhall Nova. That was my first car and I absolutely loved it. They were bangers. Like Nova cost me about 150 quid. The, the Renault cost me 200 quid, 220 quid, something really random and a full tank of fuel. So I was buzzing with that. And then it, I turned up to, to four parts training ground. I made the drive up from, from London all the way up to, to Thorpe Arch. In my grey Renault Megane, I had three hubcaps. One of them was missing. I had a massive dent in the bumper, the rear bumper. There were scratches and scrapes all over it. And I pulled up and I'm, I'm in the car park. I'm still sitting in my car and I'm looking at the cars that I'm next to. I'm looking, I'm seeing a Ferrari. I'm seeing an Aston Martin. I'm seeing Range Rovers. I'm seeing Mercedes and BMWs. And I'm in this battered little Renault Megane, like eight, nine years old. And they all the boys are looking at me thinking, please, just whatever you do, don't park your car next to mine. I, I don't want to run the risk of getting a scratch off that piece of nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> so it was fun. It was funny. <laughs> you, it didn't last long, though, unfortunately. I miss it. <laughs> <laughs> you seem as if you've become a Leeds fan over the years. And I know that you've said, despite the move to Everton and, and to Leicester and whatever was in those moves for you, that you would rather, with hindsight, or, or your preferred option would have been to finish your career at Leeds. But what is it about the club you think that makes people who, you know, like you had no prior connection to Leeds before you joined, what is it that makes you develop that connection in the way that you have? Oh, it was the way I was welcomed in. Like, you'd have good games, you'd have bad games, but the Leeds fans stuck with you through thick and thin. And unfortunately for the club but possibly fortunately for myself the time when I came in we were on our, on, on track to, to make it into the Premier League we got to the playoff final of the um, championship uh, played against Watford unfortunately lost 3-0 but then from that moment onwards it was a steady decline which I was protected from if I'm honest Dennis Wise and Gus Poyet they were in there and they protected me from it they said look we're, we're trying to create something amazing here you know, we're, we're trying to start something new. We're trying to be fresh in our approach. But I can't have you, I guess, not, not so much being poisoned by it, but being, there was a lot of players there at the time who were stuck in their ways, I guess. And the club and the manager were trying to get rid of those players to bring in a new era of, uh, of football player, a new generation, I guess, so to speak. And he didn't want me to be a part of that because it was obviously going to end up getting messy. You know, there's no two ways about about the the outlook of it. It was going to get messy, and he just wanted me to to stay fresh, to stay prepared, and to stay focused. 
So I, I had a couple of loan spells out. I think the first one was to Carlisle. I played three or four games, scored my first professional goal. But overall, it wasn't a great it wasn't a great move for myself because there were there were a lot of discrepancies between myself and the club. Uh, it didn't it didn't quite work out, unfortunately. But they they got a lot of really lovely guys there and guys that I got on really well with for for many years after that. Then I, I had a second spell at, at Scunthorpe, and that for me was better because I was going into a team where there was less pressure. There weren't as much pressure on getting relegated. It was more about getting promoted. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were doing really well. They had Billy Sharp there. They had Andy Keogh and all these boys. They were doing really, really well. They, they were flying high, as I mentioned, pushing for promotion. So to go into a team where there's there's no pressure and it's it's a, a real togetherness and, and they can see the goal in sight made my transition to, to play for those guys for the six, seven months that I was there really, really easy. And I, I got a taste of playing professional football, like, starting and finishing games whereas the season prior I was coming off the bench for for you know 15 minutes here 10 minutes there 20 minutes if I'm lucky um, and it's it's really difficult to kind of get in the swing of things uh, from that perspective but Nigel Adkins was the, the manager at the time and he, he he showed his faith in Billy Sharp and myself and we just had such a great time I, I had the freedom to do as I pleased almost when I was on the pitch you know I, I didn't have to stay up front and be the the typical number nine that that you expect. You know, I had the freedom to drift out to the wings, which, if I'm being honest, is one of my preferred positions. You know, up front on the left or the right of a three. I, I had that freedom to do that, and I scored a couple of really good goals, exciting goals, and that really, really helped me out moving forwards and coming back to Leeds um, that following season. Uh, but as I mentioned before, it wasn't a it wasn't a great time for the club, so. While Leeds were in a transitional period, there were players getting moved left and right and there were disagreements and arguments that were happening. And unfortunately, the club ended up getting relegated from the championship to, to League One, which was a, an absolute nightmare of a scenario for the club, but obviously for myself as well, because I wanted to prove a point. You know, I'm, I'm in League One at the moment with Scunthorpe and I'm doing really well and I'm comfortable there. And I don't really feel like I was being tested as much, if that, it, it sounds bizarre, but I felt like I could do it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it, it wasn't really that much of a, a problem for myself. So I was looking forward to conquering, so to speak, the League One and then really testing myself out in the championship against much better, much stronger and physical opposition. Unfortunately, as I mentioned before, the club went down, which was devastating for the club. But again, I guess on a personal level, it worked out really well because I'm coming back to a club that I've, I've got such an affiliation with all of a sudden, six, 12 months later, and I'm playing in a, a league that I now understand and I now, I get it. So um, it worked out for me personally really well because I, I, I got to be the number one, number nine. And Dennis Wise and Gus Poyet were still there. And, you know, they had a few more grey hairs, if I'm honest, uh, when I saw them the next time. But as they both promised me and they both uh, explained to me when I went out on loan initially that we're gonna we're gonna start focusing and, and building a team around yourself and we we've got these plans and those plans and and we think you're gonna be an integral part of it and that for me was a very exciting uh, exciting moment. You were talking about your um, your playing style there, Jermaine. I'm interested to know because you said you like to should we say conserve your energy at certain moments. How do you think you would have fared in <laughs> in a BL exercise? Oh, I'd have been fine. I'd have been fine. I'd have done a lot of training, wouldn't I? <laughs> <laughs> um, honestly, they um, th- this current crop of, of boys are so fit. It's amazing. Honestly, they um, if you look at the work rate that they put in, as soon as they lose the ball in, in the final third, when they're on an attack, they lose the ball. 
every single one of them sprints as as fast as they can, as hard as they can to get back behind the ball at every given any given opportunity. And the Wolves game is a perfect example. Every League United player covered on average 5k more than the Wolves player, than the Wolves team or, or, or something along those lines. The stats were incredible, but it's for moments like that and reasons like that why they are doing so well. So the result wasn't ideal, but if you look at the way the game was played and the game plan and the mindset of all the players, I don't think they could have done anything more apart from being a little bit more ruthless in the final third. Do you think that players now understand the intricacies of tactics more than even, say, 10 years ago when you were winning promotion with the club? Do you, do you think players are, are more schooled in it these days and, and I guess more educated in the sort of massive complexity of tactics that you see with somebody like Bielsa? Absolutely, absolutely. It's the nutritional side as well that kicks in and that plays a massive part because 10, 12, 14 years ago when, when I was playing, when I first started playing for, for Leeds, it was there, but it wasn't there as an integral part of becoming a better, a better player. You know, it was just to stop you going out and having a couple of beers or having some cigarettes or whatever after the games, which was an, an old school mentality. The whole generation of the tactics, the uh, physical aspect of it, the work rate, the nutritional side massively benefited the, the English game, let alone just, just us, you know. And uh, I think with the influx of foreign managers that we had come through 10, 12, 14 years ago, I think that was a, a key part of it. We had a lot of Italian managers and Spanish managers and, and the way they approached the game in terms of what they would bring to pre-match meals, instead of having burgers and chips, they would bring uh, brown pasta and some sort of brown rice or, or something along those lines. You know, it's a lot more healthy options. They, a lot of clubs cut out, cut out things like tomato ketchup and, and mayonnaise and replaced it with olive oils. It sounds silly. It sounds trivial. But in the bigger picture, if you're having these things all the, every single day, it's, it's naturally going to take its toll on you. Definitely the new generation, the new era of players appreciate and respect it because they can see first and foremost, firsthand, the, the, the difference in players. Like If you look at body shapes, for example, Wayne Rooney and Cristiano Ronaldo, they're, they're very similar in age. Cristiano Ronaldo, the way he eats and the way he trains is completely different to the way Wayne Rooney does. You know, and, and you can you can tell physically firsthand and Ronaldo's up there with rubbing shoulders with Leo Messi and they've been splitting opinion for the last decade over who's the best in the world. Not not just in, in the country or in the in the league, in the in the world. Wayne Rooney, in my opinion, had the ability to be up there rubbing shoulders with them, but maybe his level of determination or commitment wasn't as high as those two. So to be able to see those those sort of idols firsthand and, and see the results right in front of you. You know, I think um, that definitely does prove a point. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Phil, you've just been in on Marcelo Bielsa's press conference and I'd like to get Jermaine's thoughts on the upcoming game against Villa on, on Friday. So how is Marcelo today? So can, this is all fresh, hot off the press news for us here. It is about half an hour ago. 
He was asked about Calvin Phillips, who's obviously injured his shoulder. He was saying that the, the kind of estimated time frame of six weeks out is pretty loose. So it could be shorter than that. It could be longer. I think at the moment they're, they're not entirely clear, but he has avoided surgery, which I think is quite a relief for the club. I think it was fairly borderline whether he might might need some um, some surgery. Pascal Stroik is going to play in defensive midfield um, at Villa. He'll take the, the number four role. But there is still a, a doubt over Liam Cooper, who obviously had the groin strain in the warm-up against Wolves. Uh, and no Diego Llorente either. He he won't be fit. So there is going to have to be some reshuffling at the back if Cooper doesn't make it. And I think it's probably quite doubtful that he will. But you know how Bielsa is with these things. He's always fairly relaxed when he has to shuffle the team. He's, he's always fairly relaxed when it comes to finding solutions. He, he seems to prefer to find solutions rather than worry about problems. Um, and it's, it's been that way for as long as he's been head coach. And he's been in positions previously where he's been short of players or he's, he's looked like he's lacking numbers in, in key areas. So the same as ever, really. I don't think he'll be un, unduly concerned, but I, I do feel always that, that Phillips is a very, very big miss on the basis that there just isn't a, a like-for-like replacement for him or, or not a proven one. What impact do you think that's going to have on, on Friday, Jermaine? I think it will naturally have an impact. You know, he's he's definitely one of those players that would have caused an issue to Jack Grealish, who seems to be his new uh, BFF now that um, now that he's, he's by himself. But I think... It's it's definitely going to be a, a tricky position to to fill a, a tricky void to fill because um, uh, Strike is is good. Don't get me wrong; he's he's becoming a, a little bit of a utility player now. He's filling in that centre half. He's filling in that um, in that holding midfield role. It's a position that is pivotal to the way we play the game. Pretty much everything either goes through Calvin or he stops. He breaks everything up. The opposition play. So um, and not to mention his distribution. His distribution is brilliant. Mm. You know, I think that's something that gets overlooked as well. So I think we're definitely going to have to, to reshuffle the pack. But it's, it's a problem that we don't have to worry about. We've got the best manager in the land. There's a lot, <laughs> there's a lot of menace in that Villa team as well, isn't there? In, in the area where Phillips would have been playing, you've got Barkley at 10, you've got Grealish on the left, but Grealish can, can roam a bit and, and cause a lot of bother. And, and they, I mean, they've started as well as any other team. They, they look like their recruitment in the summer has made a huge difference to what was a, a fairly bang average Premier League side last season and actually pretty lucky to get away with um, with relegation in the end. Yeah, absolutely. Look, they avoided it, I think it was by one one goal, didn't they, on the final day of the season. So anything for them this season was going to be a, a bonus. As you mentioned, their, their summer window has actually been really good. They've also got Ollie Watkins, another player you, you, that we were linked heavily with as well, somebody that I'd spoken to over the summer. And he, he was on the cusp of joining the club, but for one reason or another, his move broke down and fell through, uh, which was a which it was a shame if I'm honest with you because he's he's not only a, a really good football player and a great goal scorer, but he's a lovely person as well. He would have worked out well for us. But you know they are four games in the Premier League season, four wins from four, the best record in the Premier League at the moment, unbeaten. But I think if you're a Villa fan, you should be getting you should be getting excited, absolutely 100 percent because it's you know it's a, a vast improvement on how they played last season, but. In the the grand scheme of things, the larger the larger picture, getting too excited too early is is always a dangerous subject, and it's always a dangerous um, dangerous to 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 do. You know, I think taking it game by game is absolutely the key for it. Approaching every game as as if it's your last, which is what we're doing. We we approach every game in such a positive with such a positive mindset. Nobody really knows how to to deal with us or, or combat us. You know, Wolverhampton Wanderers, the last two seasons have finished, what, seventh in the league, in the Premier League both seasons. And they didn't know how to, to deal with us. You know, they, they had to sit back for, 
70 minutes, 75 minutes or whatnot. And then um, got a, a very, very fortunate goal. But that's exactly what we need to do. We need to understand how to break teams down. And as I mentioned earlier, just the final third, we need to be a little bit more clinical. But that aside, I think we should have enough to deal with the the threat of, of Aston Villa, even without Calvin in there. But the issue then becomes... Uh, filling in at, at centre half, who we're gonna who we're gonna get to, to prop up there. I was just going to finish with with one last question, Jermaine, if if we can tell people what, as you told me, what always goes through your head every time you walk back into Ellen Road. What is it that you remember, and what is it that you were saying when when I interviewed you way back that you you still feel every time? Apart from goosebumps, <laughs> <laughs> um, I absolutely love it. Listen, it's it's such a Ellen Road is an arena. It's um, it's somewhere that, that only gladiators should be a part of. It's amazing. And do you know what? I find a shame, and I'm, I'm drifting away from your question here a little bit, if I'm honest with you. I find it's not only for, for us Leeds fans, but for, for all football fans, we're not able to experience what it's like in the Premier League firsthand from the stadiums, especially when you, you see that there are opera houses that are they're closed roofs, um, but they're still able to hold 3,000 fans or whatnot. And the football stadiums and, and all that sort of stuff is 10,000, 15,000, 20,000 plus um, capacity open air. And we're not able to safely find a way for fans to enjoy the games. You know, I would love to be a, a player playing in this team right now in the Premier League for Leeds United and have the fans there. Because walking into the stadium and then walking through the tunnel, the energy you get from it, the adrenaline you pick up from it, the the fun and the excitement that you get. And then, as I mentioned before, the goosebumps when you're walking out of the stadium to hear the roar of the fans and to know that they're 100% behind you. It's a shame. And it's, it, it is a little bit, there's a part of it that really doesn't sit right with me. And it's um it's something that I hope, I really, really hope that we're able to to rectify very soon. You always say, though, that every time you go back in, you can feel that goal that promotion goal, you can still feel it and you can still kind of remember that that little moment of silence as it flew in. Do you know what? And you know when, um, so the goalkeeper's tried to throw it out over my head and I've flicked it. It's gone to Brad Johnson and he's tried to shoot or cross as he, he said. And you know, touching on that moment just before when the ball falls to me, the split second before I actually make contact with it where I'm having like 17 different thoughts going through my head. Do I put it over him? Do I put it under him? Do I put it around him? Do I take a touch? What's going to happen if I lace it, if I hit it with my laces? That split second, it was one of the most peaceful moments because I kind of knew it before I did anything what I was going to do. But as soon as I made that connection, as you mentioned there, the ball's gone underneath the goalkeeper and before it's hit the net, it was almost like a dead silence. There was nothing there. There was no sound. I couldn't hear the wind. I couldn't hear anything. And it was just like the perfect silence. And as soon as it hit the net, that eruption, that explosion of sound was just phenomenal. And it scared the life out of me, but it excited me so, so much. It was amazing. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm just wondering, do you miss that, Jermaine, that, that adrenaline rush? Because a lot of players, when they finish playing, they struggle with the transition into being normal in real life. I mean, it must be a huge thrill to be a footballer, but then to, to have that, come to an end one day how do you deal with that for me it was difficult initially because it was it wasn't my choice it wasn't my my choice to retire I wish it was I wish I, I got to a point in my career where I said to myself right I'm waking up every morning I'm aching my body's aching 
you know, enough's enough. I've had enough. I'm not, I'm not in love with the game anymore. But it wasn't, that wasn't the case. Um, unfortunately, had three major knee operations in, in four years. And that kind of made the decision for me. The, the surgeon, who amazing as he was, said to me, listen, you can, you can try and come back from this injury. It's not a problem, but risk of having to, of doing it again. But if you do it again, then we're going to have to give you a full knee replacement. You know, and that's not something that I'd envisaged for myself before the age of 40, at least. That's something that I wasn't even part of my subconscious, let alone becoming a, a stark reality. So fortunately for myself and my missus, my missus helped me out. We ended up, once I did my knee the first or second time, we ended up um, starting up a, a vegan protein, a vegan wellness company called Supernova. And that alongside a lot of the media duties that I've been doing on Sky Sports, BBC and uh, Talk Sport, etc., helped me to deal with the the fact that I wasn't going to be playing anymore but it also gave me a, a new love a newfound love and appreciation for life outside of football having started playing professional when I was 22 anyway it was kind of I kind of understood what the real world was like outside of the football bubble so to speak and I've gone from um, living on 700 pound a month 800 pound a month so to to go back to something like that wouldn't have been an issue if that had been been the case but fortunately I'm doing pretty well with with what I'm doing and you know I've got a, a newfound focus and a newfound love for for football for vegan wellness and for commentating as well so I'm I'm really enjoying life Perfect thank you so much for joining us Jermaine we really appreciate you uh, coming on the show Ah uh, absolute pleasure thank you very much for having me Right Phil one to watch Aston Villa Friday what we uh, what we looking out for your prediction powers well obviously it was going to be Grealish against Phillips uh, England International v England International but that's not going to happen so I think the one to watch is going to be Ross Barkley wasn't quite good enough or however you want to put it to get a game under Neil Warnock at Leeds but is now looking very very decent for Villa in the Premier League I, th- I think Leeds will have to keep Grealish quiet but I think if, if they don't do the same to Barkley he will he will do them damage he would be my one to watch Well fingers crossed he does us no damage and we come away with three points Do you fancy us to win this one? I think it'll be tough, minus Phillips. I do think, minus Phillips, and, and given their form, I think it will be will be difficult. I think a point would be a good result from this. What about you, Captain Pessimistic? <laughs> I'd also take a point. I think Phillips is a big miss, and well, I think Strike is, is probably good enough to fill in. It's the reshuffle that he necessitates in the back line as well. It just might all throw us out of sync a little bit. I'm prepared to get egg on my face now for this, but we're going to win this one on Friday. That's the spirit. They're due a defeat. They're over due a defeat. Hey, listen, to catch up with all the stuff on uh, Cess Pod and all Phil's writing over on The Athletic, get yourself signed up right now for just a quid a month. Head to theathletic.com forward slash leads pod and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. The Phil Hay Show.